creamer you can try to take it Ooh, you hear that this is asmr here this is what you serve to your guests right exactly and then you get drowsy it's a truth serum and all the truth spills out oh my god in the next two hours we're gonna hear it all <laughs> he has taken the truth serum candy we are ready to begin how's the cream did you try it yet it's very creamy i hope that'll last you that's amazing. Right? Thank you. Exactly. No problem, sir. We want you to be comfortable with your coffee, with your caffeine, and with my true serum. And um, with my thoughts, yeah. And with your wonderful thoughts, music playing in the background. Oh, look at this handsome man. I'm a little bit disappointed that you didn't wear your suit today. I did. It was too cold, so I went back to change. Oh, are you serious? Mm. Oh, I was wearing. I was wearing my tails, actually. Oh, you did. And you left at home. How dare you? It's too cold. Should have brought a change of clothes. Okay, y'all are missing out. We will not see those photos in the official photos, but it's even better. It's like a teaser that you will have to go and see him live. Yeah, come next month. Exactly. Next month, he will be here performing in Taipei. He's always performing all around the world, everywhere. So trying, trying. it's a little bit hard to keep up with this guy, but but you've got the uh, like uh, eighteen plus. Restriction on this show, right? It is labeled explicit. So okay, you are free to be an adult, sir. Good. Yes. You do not have to hold back anything I never and everything. do, but usually I'm the one being held back. Exactly. I start spilling out. I know. Isn't it a beautiful thing to have freedom here in Taiwan? Is, yeah. Beautiful Taiwan. We have freedom to, you have freedom to fly, to soar to new heights. So we will do so. <laughs> okay, so I will give you a bit of an introduction and then we'll uh, we'll go. We'll have fun. Here we go. Good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats where we broadcast the most super, natural and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. In today's episode, we will travel and unlock the possibilities of the world through 88 keys black and white, like a pitch-perfect photograph that pulls hard on tightened strings, hammering away along undulating emotions, sometimes sharp, other times falling flat, sitting proud and upright, or royal and grand, amplifying the sounds of music by coupling the acoustic energy of our individual soundtracks to the air, creating a rhythmic aura around our most grandiloquent of notes and dreams and then dampened decrescendo back down to the ground. Can you read this in front of the audience before my next concert? Let's do it. I'm all in tears now. It's not even done yet. Ready? When I was young, I'm gonna tell some stories. When I was young, just like many other Asian boys crescendoing up in Southern California, my parents thought it was a good idea to buy a piano. And then the next logical good idea was to hire a private tutor to train me. And then, of course, 
that private tutor had to be none other than a friend of the family. Long ballad short, neither the lessons nor I lasted, more than even a song. But that being said, I did continue to have a lasting appreciation for the piano and the pianist who could make them sing or scream with life. Being a studious one, at times, I would often listen to classical music, the perfect BGM, to manically nerdy study sessions, and without those memorable nights alone, in my room accompanied and motivated by geniuses of our past, I probably wouldn't be where I now am. Although I would much later develop a deeper love for jazz music, I went quite a few times to Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall while living in New York City, enjoying not only opera but classical performances. Lucky for us, in stark contrast to my story, our guest for today's episode was born into a family of musicians, stuck with his early training, and excelled all the way to the top. And so, our stories converge in New York City, where I taught at other universities while he studied just around the corner on that island at Manus College of Music, earning bachelor's and master's degrees, and later becoming a full scholarship fellow at the prestigious Accademia Chigiana in Siena, Italy. Not only did he also perform in the aforementioned Carnegie Hall, but he was awarded the Artist International Debut Series Prize there. He is a frequent guest of international music festivals, a winner of numerous international competitions, has performed in the great halls of London, Sydney, Tokyo, Sapporo, Okinawa, Hong Kong, Shanghai, of course, Taiwan, and countless other luminous places spanning four continents of the globe. He is a recording artist, founder of the London Chamber Players, a frequent guest on TV and radio broadcasts, university master class instructor, and one of his most recent projects include The Four Pianists, an ensemble of established classical and jazz pianists. Yvonne and I are both gold card holders here in Taiwan. And so our stories converge yet again on another treasure-filled island, like overlapping flames of a wildfire burning down classical gold bars into liquid freestyle bars of banter. So with that, Mocha and I are ready, sitting at the edge of our seats as the curtains draw open upon this concerto of stories as we create, connect, and freestyle communicate with our esteemed guest for this latest episode of Firelight Chats, the one and only Ivan Yanakov. Kane, you left me speechless. If you can repeat exactly what you just said in front of the audience before each of my concerts. Okay, we'll make this happen. Please. Okay. The problem is that probably will get a bigger fee than mine. <laughs> I know. We'll have a standing ovation and then you can perform. Well, that will be, the whole point will be missing. <laughs> you know, like the way you said it, it's like sleeping with the bride, you know? It's not good. No. But sometimes those kind of things happen. It makes life exciting. And speaking of that, this life, your life has been an exciting one. Definitely not a boring one. You need to trigger me with a couple of questions and then we can go down those. Oh, don't uh, worry. You're going to get dangerous triggered. slopes with stories. Exactly. Those dangerous, slippery slopes. Hopefully the audience is not too triggered by our 
immense passion for life and these stories of yours. So I think we can maybe travel in space and time back to where you were born and where you grew up. I said you were born in a family of musicians in Europe, in Bulgaria, in Sofia, the yes. capital. So take us back to Sofia when this heavenly man was born in Bulgaria. Back to communist Bulgaria, which was quite different from what it is now. Things were gray, restricted. We were not able to speak what we thought. I was trained from very early age to keep my mouth shut because I was always a bit the big voice in the family. Mm. Never always said things the way they were. Even I remember being six years old when I was caught doing something extremely naughty that could have caused my whole family being incarcerated. I was at my grandma's home and they saw me writing something. At six, I was already freely writing two mm. languages in German and in, in Bulgarian. And then they saw me disappear. My aunt, who was visiting my grandma, she looked through the window. She saw me walking on the street with a very determined look and holding a little envelope. So she rushed down the stairs, managed to catch me. And with fear, noticed that the letter was addressed to the dictator at the time, and the communist dictator. So, of course, she ripped it open. And inside, I had listed my phone number, my address, my full name. And I had told him that he's a full, incompetent idiot and he should go to hell. At six years old. Six years old, yes. This is amazing. I mean, of course, my parents, they, <laughs> my dad acted as if someone gave him a cold shower. Yeah, that's a shock. Years later, of course, everyone was laughing once communism right, disappeared yeah. when the wall fell down. But my father tried to explain to a six years old what the consequences would have been. Right. It's so hard to imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because my memory of six years old writing letters was to Santa. Um, well, I did to another kind of Santa. <laughs> another Who, powerful by the way, was, bearded man. Yeah, he was uh, also considered as one of the most cruel communist dictators in Eastern Europe. That's high praise since there was quite a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> There's a pantheon there was of like, these yeah, There was dictators. like top charts every year who will be... Right. The most cruel one, yeah. But he was like Billboard charts number one. He was quite often the number one. Oh, really? After, after the Soviets, of course. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Before. of course, you had the Albanian, you had the Polish, you had the East German one, you had the Czech, you had the Hungarian, the Romanian. Yes. Oh, Romania's serious. Yeah, that was a serious one. Exactly. Yeah. They had a lot of experiments and there. Speaking of Santa and speaking of uh, dictators... I was a teenager when the Romanians toppled him and they showed live on Christmas Day how he was tried and executed oh. by a firing squad. Yes. And you saw this? Yes, because they were airing it live. In Bulgaria as well? Yeah, because Bulgaria is a neighboring country. Of so course. the TV reception was very clear. Later, of course, it was all doctored and they never showed. But actually, when it was live, they showed how the firing squad eliminated him. And the whole trial lasted like 45 minutes or like one hour because wow. they wanted to get rid of him. Otherwise he would have spoken who did what. Yes. So they just want to take him out immediately. So that was my, one of my Christmas presents. Christmas holiday memories. It was, was insane. Is watching the Romanian dictator execute on live TV, mm -hmm. trialed and. Uh, it was obviously a mock trial, but. Yeah, um, of course. He was basically accused of everything he did. Right. He was laughing because he thought the whole thing was like a, a joke. A joke. 
was like watching Kafka. Yeah. Reading Kafka. It was exactly that. Kafka esque. Wow. And within an hour, he was gone. Metamorphosis to the other side. Yeah. (laughs) So, this is part of what I grew. Now, the other side was that I came from a very artistic family. My dad was a very good um, opera singer. My mom was a piano teacher. She never taught me because from early age, she said that it's too personal. Oh, interesting. So, she sent me to one of her colleagues. I've had only one lesson with her. I was very young when she was substituting for her colleague who was traveling. But the rest of the time, she never intervened. Maybe if it was like really obnoxiously wrong note, she would come into the room and gently say, okay, can you play it slowly and see if it really, it's supposed to be this way. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. But otherwise she was very hands off and let her colleague kind of take over. Yeah. And I think that was a good approach because I saw some colleagues who were trained by their parents and it became too personal, too charged to it. Too emotional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And these things should be separate. It should be, exactly. So when did you start hitting those keys? Do you remember? Um, I was about five. I already had the perfect pitch. Okay. Nearly perfect memory in terms of remembering melodies. And I could even hear notes simultaneously, like chords or uh, two different voices being played. What about tempo, like absolute tempo or something like this? That was attained much later. Oh. But I do have colleagues who have nearly perfect sense of tempo. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But you started out with basically perfect pitch. Yeah. Do you think that's a genetic thing or is it because maybe you had kind of overheard music? It's not a genetic thing, but many young kids are predisposed to that. Okay. And it doesn't, for some reason, they don't even have to be so much exposed to classical music or to music in general. Huh. Because I've met two guys. One is one is an engineer, has nothing to do with music. The other one is a doctor. They were not trained with music as kids and they still have their perfect pitch. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so it's a way of, I think it's just the way the neurons connect with the, with the, with the hearing. Of course, if you're trained, that's also a predisposal to... If someone doesn't have perfect pitch, how difficult do you think that is to train? And are some people more difficult than others to train? Well, actually, if you're a string player, it's much better not to have a perfect pitch. Oh, interesting. Yes, because you always strive to play on tune and then you don't match with the rest of your colleagues. Right. So actually you stick out as the one who is playing out of tune. It's too perfect. Yeah. That it sounds like robotic. Yeah, basically we have perfect and relative pitch. The relative pitch is the one you train whether by singing or playing an instrument where you have to deal with intonation. And this is not the case with the piano because the piano is already tuned. Yes, right. And generally that's how keyboard instruments are. Okay. But if you're a string player, if you're a woodwind or a brass player, you can micro adjust the pitch. And then of course you play with colleagues and then you make it blend. So within the context, they sound good if they really know how to tune. So did you have pressure to kind of, you know, continue along this line of music and piano and things like this? Zero. My parents had the um, philosophical approach that they should let me be. And they saw I was, I was super lazy as a kid. I would barely practice 15, 20 minutes. And that was with a lot of negotiating and bargaining and, you know. Right. It was terrible. Arm twisting. Yeah, well, the, the physically not, but... Okay. <laughs> so from early age, I decided that I want to be in the music field. And my ideas were to be either a music producer or a sound engineer, or maybe a conductor. And then things changed when I was 13. I was very active skier. 
one day when going downhill, I got into a higher speed than usual, I think. That's what the teacher said. It was way over 100 kilometers per hour. No way. Yeah, and then one of the, the right ski got into a bump, oh. into a snow uh, yeah. bump. bump, and got stuck there. And then the, the holders didn't open. So no basically way. I heard that it was very windy and I heard that massive crack in my leg and then my leg was hanging down as if I had a fourth joint below my knee. Whoa. I could not even explain what the pain was like. So long story short, after the hospital stay, I was left at home with a cast all the way up to my hips. I couldn't move for four weeks. Immobilized yes. in your bed. Yeah. And once I started crawling around again, I said, okay, so studying for school to catch up was about six hours. Reading books, let's say two, three hours. Watching TV a little bit, playing games. I still had a few hours left mm. in the day. So I was like, okay, let me check this. Uh, this little, piano thing. Yeah, this little box with keys. Right. And one day I sat down and I practiced five hours. And then my piano teacher came for a lesson. She went to the kitchen to talk to my mom. She said, what's wrong with him? This is the first time he's actually prepared actually so well yeah and then it just became like when i was 13 instead of falling in love with a girl as many of my classmates did i fell in love with the piano wow so for the next few years i was a complete nerd yeah. i was practicing 10 11 hours between school you're obsessed i was obsessed completely obsessed my buddies who used to come and take me out for playing some games or doing some sports were shocked because suddenly I was completely unavailable. Right. I got into a very difficult to get in music school where the competition was fierce. This is in Sofia. That was in Sofia. Yeah, the, the music high school at the time was absolutely nearly impossible to get in unless you had some connections or you were very... Virtuoso. Virtuoso, yeah. Okay. And I got in and I remember... I was shocked because nobody was practicing there. They just couldn't care. That's Any funny. of them were like kids of someone who was famous or exactly. kids They're who were child prodigies and later they just became lazy. So my classmates, they would run away from school to go, you know, drinking or having a cigarette or mm -hmm. having some, you know, having a girlfriend or whatever. I used to run away from school to go practicing. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And honestly, I don't regret because eventually I had my late debut in two life. So. Right, 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 right. That stuff can come later. Of course, that can always come. But there were a few years that I really concentrated on practicing. I was waking up at six o'clock, going swimming at 6.30, coming back, practicing yoga, doing meditation, doing up to 100 push-ups a day. And this is yeah. still when you're like 13 or like 14, 15, 16 years. Okay. Yeah. So this was like such a passion for you. It became kind of like a military regimen. Yes. And it was self-imposed. Even my, like my mom ended up calling my friends and said, saying, take listen, him out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of the same passages being repeated again and again and again and again. I'm going mad. That's hilarious. Said, Please take him out, find him a girlfriend, do something, you know? do some normal stuff. Yeah. That's hilarious because she's a piano teacher. Yeah, but my parents were quite liberal, so. Right. They wanted you to be well-rounded. And do you think if you hadn't had that ski accident, maybe your life would be a lot different that you wouldn't have got into it? Or do you think that eventually it was kind of fate? That well, I think if I didn't practice so much, I would have arrived here in a Ferrari, not in a U-bike. I see. Because I would have been more into the music industry, which I still understand. I still... I used to have a company that was dealing with um, a lot of music projects. And actually, 
It's not bad. Okay. But I would have been more full-time into that. So that was high school, this kind of specialized music high school. Yeah. And you did that until you graduated. Yeah. Funny enough, my last year in high school was the year when Bulgaria started breaking away from communism. The block. Okay. Yes. And this is the time when we were going to the streets to demand for changes. I remember being on the street when the successor of the um, dictator, who was also a communist actually, okay. was contemplating whether to send the tanks to take care of us. And it was a very sensitive issue because it was five months after what the Chinese did in Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen, yeah, yeah. 1989. And I think that's kind of what convinced him or maybe his inner circle who were still all communists. They said, come on, we can't do this. It's, you know, changes are happening. Yeah, exactly. Let's get the out media's of, watching. Yeah, get out of the bubble. There was already CNN, there were like BBC, all the- All the major- All the media was there already. Yeah. So you remember this, this was the environment yeah. around you. Now remember between preparing to go into conservatory, having my first serious girlfriend, and practicing, and at the same time, every time there was a big protest or meeting, we would go. Wow. Yeah. Oh I remember goodness. one time we had this, literally, considering that Sophia at the time was 1.2 million people. Okay. We had one march that consisted of 1 million people. No way. Yeah. So relatively speaking, you know, you lived in New York. Yeah. Imagine out of 9 million people, if 8, eight million went on the streets. It's so scary. I mean, no, it was for super, those people, super peaceful. It was right. super peaceful. Yeah, we had like um, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel flew from the States to sing for us. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, at these the, like rallies. Yeah. At the time, the vice president of the US, Dan Quayle, mm, yes, flew to Bulgaria to encourage the crowd. So it was really, it was something. And when the kind of wall fell, where well, that, were it you? Was already, it had already fallen. Okay, yeah. I see. The changes, they happened literally within five days in whole Eastern Europe. On the 9th of November, the, the Czechs changed. On the 10th was Bulgaria. On the 11th, the Berlin Wall fell. I see. So I think Mr. Gorbachev said, okay, guys, just let go. Probably they ran out of resources. Yeah. Right. But it was, it was amazing times. You know? I know. Everyone That's going inspiration and shouting and yeah. Oh, wow, wow, wow. That's amazing. So from there, what was the next step after graduating from this um, school? It was a year or two that I don't quite remember because that's when I discovered the power of alcohol in women. Mm. A little bit, as I said, late debut. Things came later, yes. Yes, but with a vengeance. <laughs> so a two-year tour. Yeah, to the other a, side. It was a two-year tour to the other side, up to the point that my parents couldn't recognize me. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Actually, one of the changing things for me was that right before the fall of communism, I was given a full scholarship to study in France for the summer. And it was my first touch with the free world. I had just turned 18. And in order to be allowed to leave the country, because we were not allowed to travel, right. we had to leave a very big deposit refundable deposit that I will come back to uh, the, that was like the uh, government, basically. Yeah, to the government, to yeah. the authorities. Yes. Right. To get I your was, visa, basically. Yeah. Uh, to get an exit visa, because in communist times, we used to have exit visas on top of the entry visas. For right. Yeah. China West. still does that too. Of course. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So I uh, remember my dad was thinking of just buying me an airplane ticket, fly to Geneva and then go up to the French Alps. Okay. He said, you know what? You're 18. 
Yeah. Skier way up there. He said, yeah, <laughs> nearly. So he said, let's get you on the train. So I had this two and a half day train ride, which was through former Yugoslavia, then through Croatia, Slovenia. I had to stop there. From there, we took a train all the way up to the mountains where the train line stopped because it used to continue to Vienna, but I had to go down to Venice. So I got into this crazy Italian bus and the driver was <laughs> driving downhill as if there were no brakes. Yeah. He was wow. basically using the accelerator when he was going downhill. Oh, yeah. That sounds pleasant. Yeah. And ended up eventually in Trieste. I took a train to Venice. That was the first city I saw in the free world. Oh, amazing. What was that like? I mean, Venice is an amazing city as it is. It was, you know? it was you know, for me, like being 18 and coming right out. Bulgaria was still communist. We still didn't know changes were coming. I know. And then suddenly. Yeah. So it was amazing. Then another night, overnight train to Geneva, then a bus up to the French Alps. What was the most impactful kind of location, city or place during this long train ride up to your destination? Well, I think it was, I think it was Venice. Okay. Because I had a 12 hour layover between the trains and I enjoyed it so much that at the end, I realized that I was 30 minutes away from the train station and the train was leaving 20 minutes, which meant that I was missing it. Yeah. So I did something that was a bit like in a movie. I found one of those motorboats instead of taking the little, they usually have their boat buses. Yeah, right. But I had no time. So I jumped into a motorboat. Whoa. And he drove me to the continental side of Venice. Because, Through the canals. Yeah because otherwise I would have missed the train. And I had to arrive at the train station, go into a little dodgy basement, pick up my luggage, which was locked there, drag it all the way up the stairs. The Italians had no escalators or uh, lifts at the time. Jump on the train and then take off. But ultimately you made it to Paris. Oh, well, the, the festival was in the French Alps. And after the festival, I went to Paris for a week. Okay. And I think that totally changed my mind after that. Because um, I went to the conservatory and actually there was an option because Bulgaria was still communist. They said, okay, if you want, you can apply for political asylum. Because I was over 18, so I could make my own decisions. Yes. And I was that close of doing it. But then I said, okay, I still have one more year at high school and it's just going to mess up. Right. Things, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So you gave up that opportunity to apply as a political refugee. Which um, literally two months later was invalidated because things changed. Right, changed that yeah. quickly. Yeah. And then I went back to Bulgaria and the changes happened, a year and a half of oblivious life and not remembering what's happening. Mm. And I decided to pull myself together and to apply for American schools. And I remember having that conversation with my dad. He said, are you joking? Everyone is lining up to get visas for the States. You will not even be looked upon. So I didn't say anything. I sent my videotape at the time. It was still with VHS. Yeah, VHS. Yeah. Yes. So I sent it by... Um, by horse. Pigeon. By horse to the States, to a conservatory, to one of the schools, to the Juilliard. Oh, yes. And within a few weeks, they responded that they sent me official visa letter. And I remember walking into the American embassy and walking out with the visa literally three or four minutes later. Whoa. This is in the times when getting an American visa was just like, it was no questions asked. There was no fingerprints. I had to show them two photos of mine. I gave them my passport. And since it was by invitation, there was no visa fee. Okay. So as long as America says yes, let's go. It was amazing. Yeah. 
So I got the visa, then I went to the States. I applied for a couple of schools and I got into Menace. Okay. Actually, getting into Menace was another, I saw some stories getting lost on the bus in Arizona <laughs> and yeah, missing a bus in Arizona, sorry. Wait, so why were you in Arizona? Because Menace is in New York City, right. as we know. I also lived in Arizona for a bit, but why were you down there? Okay, that's what happened. I auditioned for Juilliard and I got into the music program, but they said your English is so bad that you can't even do the English training program. Right. Yeah. But you can play. I could play, but that was not enough. And I ended up being in New York with not being accepted in any school. Okay. And I was on a six month visitor visa. So time was running out while well, I still had five months on the visa. And then I saw that there was a music festival in California, in Malibu. It was very late to apply, but I said, anyway, I'll apply. I made a video. I sent it. They accepted me. They gave me a full scholarship. They even bought my ticket. Wow. Yeah. Nice. So I spent um, the summer there, then ended up going to Michigan because this was the place where I was accepted to do an intensive English program. At WMU. WMU, yeah, okay. Kalamazoo, yeah. And then the second semester started studying piano there with already improved English because I went to a special course that was five days a week, five hours a day. Right, very intensive. Like writing, listening, conversing. And um, listening. Analyzing grammar and you name it. And you were able to pick it up in basically a semester. Everyone was. The teachers were great. And I mean, they were trained how to work with foreigners. That was the first time when I started properly using computers. Because before then, back in Bulgaria, I was training only how to do coding, but never right. actually used Never computer. actually using a, like a PC or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you finished this English program, and then you started to apply to other colleges. Yes. Okay. And I spent another summer in Malibu at that music festival. They reinvited me. Imagine you stay in that beautiful campus at Pepperdine University. Oh, at Pepperdine. Yeah. Overlooking the- It is one Pacific. of the most beautiful campuses in, stunning. in the world, it's, it's but stunning. in California stunning. for sure. Yeah. Overlooking the Pacific Ocean. You see the PCH as well, and then the Pacific actually, Ocean down there. I actually don't see the PCH from the- uh, The campus. From the campus. Right. And that's the pretty part. You'll look right over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember one time going shopping because we used to go down shopping. And I remember the girls screaming and running after Robin Williams. Oh, yeah, because he used to right. live there. So yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of stars there, but that's yeah. true. Robin Williams was a famous resident. Yeah. And he's a funny guy. So yeah, brilliant guy. Wow. Okay. So you're at Pepperdine playing music in Malibu. Yeah. And we it's were dragged, we were taken around Southern California to give different performances. And one of the funniest stories was one time we went to the beach in LA just before we had a big concert at the LA Museum of Art, Modern Art. LACMA? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And they used to have those uh, Sundays at four concerts. So we were included in one of their concerts. And literally one hour before the concert, we were still swimming like there was no tomorrow at the beach. <laughs> so then we ran to the museum and I realized I had no underwear. No way. Yeah. So I just had to pull those pens up and just- And just be salty and play. And just not to look at any pretty girls in the room because I didn't want to embarrass myself. Yeah. Or it could have been sexy like this. Mm. Wow, who's this surfer well, pianist? It was, it was a radio, it was not TV anyway. So I see. It was okay. <laughs> and then similar thing happened. We had to do a concert in Idlewild. That time I forgot my socks. Idlewild, okay. So I played with no socks at that concert. Wow, okay. Yeah. So it seems like there's a theme here with you and clothes. 
yeah, forgetting things. I've played with no cufflinks. I've played without, uh, I've played without a bow tie. Okay. That one, yeah. I played without a belt. So just dragging my pants with <laughs> my hand on the side. It's a theme. Yeah. What's and the next concert going to be? Well, I played also a concert in New York. That was really, that was, um, I think that was the best achievement. <laughs> just before I was about to go on stage, I realized that I was missing parts of my concert attire. So this is what happened. I was playing for a singer and she saw me coming on stage and she froze because I was wearing my beautiful tails with a nice tuxedo shirt, right. with my bow tie, nice shoes and jeans with holes on the <laughs> knees because I'd forgotten my dress pants. And you were even wearing coattails. Yeah. That's hilarious. Honestly, I wish there were photos being taken. I know. That was, yeah. That's a classic image right there. Yeah. And there were a bunch of trendy artsy Germans sitting in the on the set. Oh, we thought it was so cool. He's wow. so avant-garde. Yeah, yeah, so cool. <laughs> okay. So then you finally made it into Manus and started to study there. Yes. And that was another opener because I finally got integrated into New York's life. Yes. Culturally and in every possible way. What year was this when you Nin started? 93. Okay. Probably you were not even born yet. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't born for like Neither was I. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You weren't either. None of us were. None yeah. of us were. But we will imagine what like, 1993 in New York City was like. What was that like? It was the end of a dirty era because the streets were not very tidy. New York City has been through a lot of ups and downs. It has. And that's what makes it a very unique place. Exactly. But I ignored that part and I concentrated more on what it had to offer culturally, musically, even going to the museums. I remember walking and seeing a whole room with Rembrandt. I know. It's insane because you sit in another continent going the first time to listen to concerts at Carnegie Hall or when we had sponsors that would drop us tickets for the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were too expensive for students to afford. Of course. And I managed to see people like uh, Domingo, like Pavarotti and... Wow. Right, right, right. Many of the big legends. Yeah. Oh, must have been so amazing for you. It was, yeah, it was uh, out of this world. And you stayed there for not only a bachelor's, but a master's degree. That's right. And then I sort of lingered for another five years. So That's the way to do it in New York City if yeah. you can. If you can make I, it happen. I, I could, yes. And finally, one year after September 11th, I decided to leave. Okay, so you were there during September I 11th. watched it from my window because I used, to work, I used to live in the Lower East Side. So I had an unobstructed view. Of the World Trade Center. Yes, I did. It, the smoke was billowing. You literally were watching I it. I was watching it. And then there was, because next to us, there was a um, fire station. And I heard when all the engines went and only one returned. It was, yeah, it was something else. And, oh, wow, yeah. wow, wow. So looking back on those, you know, kind of seven years of college in New York City at this esteemed music school, what were your kind of biggest memories, your greatest learnings or takeaways from that time? I had amazing professors and Manis prided itself with offering very good music theory, which means everything that is related to music more in an analytical way. So we studied analysis, we studied polyphony, harmony, history of music. We had to take um, humanities classes, literature, art history, you name it. I mean, there were so many classes that we had to take mm. and 
I think it enriched me because many of the conservatories, they usually limit those classes, which means that they limit your spectrum. Yeah. Yes, of course, when you're young, you should practice a lot. You should move your fingers. But after all, you're a human. And if you're not an artist, if you're not exposed. Exactly. To the wider world. Yeah. I remember going to my professor for art history and telling her that I'm going to Paris. The next week she came with a little list and she said, okay, this is what you have to see. This is what you have to see. And if you don't see them, I'll fail you. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's a great teacher. Yeah, she was amazing. Oh, wow. What's her name? Eleanor Richter. Okay. Shout out to great professors, Eleanor Richter. Yes. I hope she's still around because she was a really, really uh, brilliant woman. Inspirational. Yes. And of course, we had the uninspiring teachers. We Mm, had this. Those exist as well. Oh, yeah. Finally, we kicked him out. Say all their names. (laughs) 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 Mr. Smith. Rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, he was teaching us literature and basically when we did analysis, every, no matter which book it was, which period, which writer, what language, he would turn into a deep sexual meaning of whatever. A double entendre. I was terrible. Triple, like obviously quadruple. he had some problems, you know, he didn't go to his therapy sessions. Yeah, that was... I everything said, okay, was just Everything dirty. was sexual. Right. You lose the point of learning such a good literature. And on top of that, he was not the nicest person. Although he had a tenure, eventually we managed to remove him. Oh. Yeah. The students in general. The students. Because we uh, signed a petition and basically 99.9% of the students signed the petition. So the school did a little questionnaire and he was out. That's impressive because, you know, tenure is pretty ironclad. But it is, it is. There are ways. And he thought he was invincible, but exactly. He was literally gone in four weeks. Impressive. You learned that on the streets of Sofia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Without any tanks involved. Exactly. Yeah. You're toppling dictators everywhere. <laughs> but Manus is part of the new school, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. And the new school has a very interesting history. Of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very kind of progressive politics. A lot of Europeans, right? Were so a lot of uh, German Jews that went there end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Exactly. And they brought many liberal ideas. Some of them good, some of them not so good. True. But it's just with every spectrum of life. Not everything is perfect. I remember some of my humanities classes were interchangeable and I could take them at the new school. So for a semester, I went to study, instead of studying uh, uh, sociology, I took a course called the Greek mythology and its influence to other religions. Ooh, And basically, yeah, it was a very interesting Orthodox Jewish professor who was actually teaching at Yeshiva. He was wearing his hat. He didn't have a belt because they don't use belts. He's also like has earlocks. Actually, no, he didn't. Okay. He wasn't Hasidic. He wasn't Hasidic, but he was Orthodox. He spoke seven or eight languages. Wow. Including he knew how to read in Sanskrit. (laughs) Impressive. uh, Old Greek. And he was so competent that Greeks would fly him to Athens University to lecture in Greek mythology. Oh, that's cool. And they would provide him with all the kosher meals and everything. Tells you how... How freakish that brain was. He was incredible. So I took him for a semester. And I learned so much because he was comparing the Bible with the uh, Bhagavad Gita of the, yeah. um, with the Buddhist philosophies, with Islam, with, Christianity, Ju- with Judaism, Christianity. Judaism. Yeah. And he was saying that so many events actually happened in the same, in the other books as well. Right, 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 right. Of course, so much overlap. And even he was comparing that in the mythology, there were so many stories that actually are later described in all those holy books. Yeah. The ancient Greeks, the Babylonians. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was uh, mesmerizing to, 
Did you grow up in a religious family at all? I mean, obviously no. you grew up in, you know, communist Bulgaria, but. Well, we observed our uh, Christian holidays, but we were not churchgoers. Okay. So you were very open-minded at that time? Yes. But maybe not so well-educated about that stuff until that class. I mean, I'm sure that's an extremely comprehensive, you know, view of the world. It was because even the Americans, they were so For impressed sure. by his knowledge. I'm sure. Yeah. All Americans need to take that class. Sure. Yes. Go. Where is this guy? <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. And then, so what about the city itself? How was New York City? And, you know, you mentioned some things about like going to museums and other kind of things, but what are some of your other memories? Um, first, I lived in the Upper West Side. So I was near Columbia University. I was oh, nice. Where? 109th. Okay. Near Broadway. Broadway and Amsterdam. Between Broadway and Columbus. Okay. And I saw when this area started to change its, um, so to say, ethnic balance, which was very interesting to see how Hispanics were slowly replaced by middle-class whites who started buying apartments there. Okay. So yeah. you were there during that early gentrification. Yes. I don't know if I like it or dislike it, but it was just interesting to watch how the types of shops changed, the businesses. The yeah. And as we kind of alluded to before, but that really is the history of New York City, right? It is, it's just because constant it changes, changes back and forth, yeah. Yeah, I was living up in Inwood, which is the northern tip of Yeah, Manhattan. I've been there many times. Yeah, yeah, right below the South Bronx. And, you know, when I was there, it was like 98% Spanish, Dominican and Puerto Rican. I remember that time. But well. originally it was Irish. Yeah, and now they're back to, uh, it's quite a uh, white neighborhood again. It's becoming gentrified, exactly. Beautiful parks up there. and Oh, the parks are amazing, yeah. But what I liked about New York was, of course, the alternative culture. Going to um, nightclubs where somewhere in the East Village where you have to do a special knock on the door and they look through the little peephole and see if they approve you. Yeah, you give your secret code and then... Yeah, it was amazing. Okay, so this classical musician has another side. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> I had a girlfriend at the time, she was a modern dancer and she took me to quite a few interesting uh, contemporary dance performances. And many of them were not in the established institutions. They were in little spaces downtown or in Soho or in off, Chelsea. Off-Broadway. Off yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really nice to see that. And then I started going to some small galleries also downtown that weren't really listed as galleries. Right. Not like now Chelsea or something like this. Yeah, or Upper East Side with the Madison yeah, Avenue exactly. galleries. Yeah, exactly. Which is, it's good to have this, you know, art shouldn't be regulated. Exactly. It's just not possible. Yeah, we should be able to have that whole spectrum, right? Yeah. And yeah. there is always something new coming and you never know where it comes from. Sometimes even the artists themselves cannot verbalize. Articulate what's, what's going on. Exactly. They're just riding a wave. Yeah. Sometimes I, I compare often uh, fine arts to music. And I've premiered quite a few pieces by contemporary composers. And let's say I play something and I say to the composer, occasionally I meet them to play the piece and see how it goes. They never influenced me. They never said, okay, you should be doing this. And sometimes I'll be like, okay, it sounds like, let's say a bird singing. He said, oh yeah, that could be. Oh, could be. Could not, be. Not can be, but could be. Next time I would say, ah, but maybe sounds like a sewing machine or like a train. Oh yeah, also, yeah. And I noticed that all good composers would not give you strict instructions. Yeah, right. Because they wrote it almost like in a semi-conscious state of mind. That's the mm. interesting thing about music, because when you write fiction, it's always borrowed from some story you overheard or you experienced where you changed names, time, circumstances. With painters, 
they're inspired by what they see. But music, let's say if the melody is not a melody you overheard, if it's not based on a folk melody or some popular melody, then right. it just, and not to mention the harmonies, which are Exactly, it's another else. level. Yeah. Right. So um, that's why I'm saying that the arts have to be totally let. Let to be free. Let to be free. Exactly. Yeah. So what about, you just mentioned composition. How much has composition been part of your career? And if so, when did it kind of start? It's a closet activity. Okay, it's a closet one. Mm -hmm. I see. It's behind locked doors. Exactly. It hasn't come out of the closet I yet. See. I've done some So is this a world premiere? Coming out of the closet, are you, <laughs> Ivan? God knows. But that's one of the reasons I respect so much composers, because they start from nothing. As I said earlier, with literature, with architecture, with uh, fine arts, you're inspired by something. But mm. with music, it just and it has no logic because right now I'm premiering a piece by a composer who was self-taught. Of course, there are some rough moments that we're correcting together, but the rest is like, wow, you know, this thing came out from somewhere. So I guess it's a state of the mind. It's a state of the of your own spirituality, of your own um, yeah, like existence, basically. Yeah. So what about kind of getting into musical theory or maybe musical history? Who are some of the most inspirational or interesting composers to you? Chronologically speaking, I'm probably a great, 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 great grandchild of Bach Ooh, in terms of being educated. Because Bach was the teacher of his son. His son was the teacher of Haydn and Mozart. Haydn was also the teacher of Beethoven. Beethoven was the teacher of Czerny and Liszt. Liszt is there too, and yeah. When, once yeah. you have Liszt, Liszt was the teacher of all the major pianists in Europe at the end of the 19th century. Yeah. So one of his students was a very famous um, Italian pianist, Egon Petri, who lived mostly in Berlin. And one of the biggest Bulgarian pianists studied with him. My teacher studied with that guy. Oh, and here I am. There you are. Yeah. That is a chronology. Yeah. So uh, obviously I'm not the only case. There are many, many cases like this. So there is some kind of... Um, like an ancestry? So like it's an ancestry and it's... Um, you take a little bit and I'm sure like there must be at least one phrase that was said by Bach. Right. That has arrived into my head at some point. It's kind of like that idea of the Chinese whispers, right? So you yeah. whisper something into someone's ear and then that person whispers it into another person's ear. and Yeah, but this is over 300 changes. years. I know. Period. And these are the greats, some really classic, classical pieces as well. Exactly. Yeah, and Liszt is a very interesting guy because he was, was also kind of like the first superstar. I was about to say he was the first <laughs> rock right. star. Yeah, exactly. He traveled and um, he fathered so many kids with married nobility. I know. He was notorious. And even when he went to a retreat, People will find out where he was and they will just come and serenade him with his own music outside. He was famously known as a handsome, very handsome man. Yeah, women would faint during his concerts. And he gained huge success as well, right? Kind huge, of huge, yeah. Economically, which was oh, kind yeah, of unheard yeah. he of at um, that time. But he was, he was a star. He was economically quite independent. Right. And he raised money to build schools. He was sponsoring other musicians. Yeah. He built, really uh, with his money, he built churches. He built the Budapest Academy of Music. He built schools in Germany, in uh, Austria. He built the first monument of Beethoven. It was all his money. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. But for you, is Bach kind of like the grandfather, the godfather? 
Is he like the Moses? The Abraham? Well, he, yeah, he was um, probably, yeah. <laughs> Basically. He was something else because even though he wrote Baroque, the most interesting thing with Bach is, and I'm, I'm just telling it as a trivial thing, is he wrote all those fugues. Right. And actually, why do they sound good? Is because he didn't follow all the rules in any of them. Oh. Because if he did, it would have been the most boring music on earth. If you listen to his predecessors, maybe you, you would listen to one fugue just out of uh, curiosity. Right. Art history. Exactly. Just to, <laughs> to educate yourself to know yeah. what it is all about. Exactly. But Bach actually introduced modern harmonics into the fugues. Okay. So when you play a fugue, actually, it sounds very harmonic. It doesn't sound like a polyphonic music that is so boring. So when you have pianists that play Bach so strictly, it's basically they're on the wrong track. Because he was a very human. I mean, how can you have 19 kids? You know, obviously he enjoyed life to some point. Yes. And he enjoyed those two years of dark time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of his music was just down to earth. It's very free. He was dreaming of having a keyboard that would be actually be able to play with different power and different dynamics. Because at his time they had the harpsichords where everything sounded the same. When was your first kind of Bach piece that you had mastered? Oh, maybe eight, when I was eight. Oh, wow. Because he wrote... As every good master, he wrote pieces that were accessible for kids. I see. And you started with those. Yes, of course. But he introduced many of his works in a lighter way through those little pieces. There will be, let's say, eight bars or 16 bars or half a page, then later one page. And it will be with very, like a melody that is acceptable to kids. You know, it's like when you have a kid at home, you know, when they're little, their taste for food. I always compare music with food because I love food. You know, when they're little, their food preferences are very limited. Even if you give them tomatoes, they frown upon them. They're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're very picky. Like, yeah, they're like some maybe hamburger, maybe some French fries, maybe That's pizza. It. Yeah. yeah. And later on, they develop. Right, a more so sophisticated palate. Yes, and then later on when they recognize that they have to eat something more healthy. And it's the same with, with Bach. He knew how to... Give simplify yeah to give something in a very Mozart did the same thing or many composers did just give it in a way that the kid can understand huh. continuing along this line what about another inspirational one in some way and in what way I usually look at the ones that not only composed but performed and there were quite a few like Mozart was like that right. because he traveled a lot to perform and Listomania of course yeah Liszt Chopin <laughs> was the same way yeah it's Chopin. very interesting like Chopin and Liszt at some point shared the same girlfriend I know there was a lot of uh yeah a lot of relations back then mm. a lot of people are tied together in many ways oh yes yeah Liszt was also very good friends with uh, Wagner well his daughter exactly. divorced I mean Wagner made his daughter divorce another musician and marry him. And marry him, yes. So Liszt was basically the father in law. Even though they were the same age, they were both born in 1811. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. But I guess Liszt had no um, no right to complain since he was doing all these awful things around Europe with exactly. women. <laughs> but with Liszt, the most interesting thing was that every two or three years he would repent. Oh, I sins, see. And he would go and lock himself in the Vatican as a monk. Oh, that he guilt would, hit him hard. Yeah, he would stay there and pray and read the Bible and, and become good write again. religious music and then just come bang out of the closet again. And, and then just go wild. Yeah, do the misdeeds again. <laughs> wow. 
Okay, so that's where you draw your inspiration from. <laughs> um, well, speaking of performing composers, one of the most brilliant examples is Rachmaninoff. Oh, yeah. He was probably arguably the best pianist of the 20th century. Right, arguably the most difficult to kind of replicate. But I'm saying like, even as a pianist, the way he played other composers' pieces was unreal. I see. And at the same time, he had a very good commercial sense because when the Russian Revolution happened, he packed all his originals. He took them along to the West. He registered the copyrights once again oh, and started really? making the big money. And then when he moved to America, he couldn't make so much money from composing. And instead of being another, yet another composer striving, being hungry, right. he started performing. He would do up to um, 100, 150 concerts per year in the US. And each concert at the time would be about five, 6,000 US. Imagine back wow, in the really? 1920s, 1930s, like even up to 10,000. So he basically in 10 years, he got his house in Switzerland, his apartment in Paris, apartment in New York, house in New Jersey, and this huge villa in Beverly Hills. Oh, impressive. And he had the, his yacht boat because yeah. he loved yachting. He had all the sports cars. He was friends with Walt Disney. So he managed to keep oh. his music very substantial, but he had that very mercantile and uh, commercial side in a good way of course right he didn't rob anyone he didn't uh, cheat but just being uh, himself hats off for doing such an amazing right. work to have normal life with his family why do people say you know i think in popular culture people say he's like the most difficult to play because he is why he's insanely is that? difficult how can you explain that to a non-pianist to a layman what is so difficult about his music Imagine, okay, we have 10 fingers, right? And imagine nine fingers being involved of doing different tasks <laughs> simultaneously. Then let's say if we number the fingers, you know, from the thumb to the pinky from one okay. to five, imagine that number one is playing something. Then the number four has to take over. Well, meanwhile, number two is being held. And then number three and number five interact in a different melody. And five goes into the one in the left hand. So you have like, imagine like a full symphony orchestra, but being played by 10 fingers. Oh, that and was a great of, explanation. And on top of that, everything is fast, furious. I know. Yeah. It's so crazy to listen to that. It's crazy. Yeah. And you've recorded albums of? I've done some singles and I just, my upcoming album contains one of his most difficult pieces. Oh, really? Yeah. What is the name of this piece? It's called- Can you tell uh, us about yeah, it? Yeah, Variations on a Theme by Corelli. Corelli was a Baroque composer, Italian composer who lived in the 17th century. When Rachmaninoff wrote the piece, he already lived in America. So that's uh, in his late years. He was already 50 something. Okay. Already and a Beverly Hills playboy. Not, not yet. Not playboy. Okay. He was a very serious family man, but he really enjoyed, he enjoyed high, his life. He enjoyed high life in a good way. Okay. Yeah. And he used to play with a very good violinist with Fritz Kreisler. Kreisler inspired him to such a level that Rachmaninoff wrote two pieces back to back that were variations based on themes from the violin repertoire. Corelli variations, and then he wrote the famous Paganini Rhapsody, yes. which is with orchestra, with right. piano and orchestra, where you have Hollywoodish themes a little bit. It sounds like, like Disney at some places. Right, 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 right. And he has a little jazzy variation in that one, which is probably one of the most difficult variations to play. But the thing is that he was obsessed and whenever he could, he would practice 
seven, eight, nine, ten hours a day oh. on top of composing, on top of being a good father and later grandfather. And it was like he had a very fulfilling life. So. Oh, wow. Are there any pieces of his or anyone else that are so difficult that they really challenge you or you're unable to play them? Well, Rachmaninoff, as difficult as he is, everything was very pianistic, which means they're very comfortable within the shape of the human hand. Okay. There is nothing excessive. It just takes a lot of time. A lot of skill, a lot of time, a lot of practice. That's the thing that um, basically my job is it's 95% of the time I'm a craftsman and 5% an artist. So majority of it is really just honing that craft. Yeah, it's like one time I remember in Geneva, I was walking on the street and I saw one of those little um, shops where they made their own handmade watches, the notoriously expensive Swiss right, watches. Right, like the Swiss watches, of course. Yeah, yeah. And the guy, the owner, he had a desk by the window where he was working on making a new masterpiece. Timepiece, yes. A little timepiece. And what I noticed is that his hands were barely moving, but actually they were moving. So he would go into the nanomillimeters. With his hands. Yes. And he had this massive magnifying glass. Right, like stuck to his eye. I know it was just um, okay, on, on the desk. Placed. Yeah. And underneath was little elements I couldn't even see because the magnifying glass made them bigger. And he would just go there and- Just play in the nano world. He, yes, in the nano world, exactly. Ooh, that's amazing. And I said, okay, but that's what makes it so invaluable. Exactly. Do you feel like that when you are playing the piano? Do you feel like mm, you're going into- When I play, not, but when I practice, yes. And the practice is something completely different. It's just, you have to go through such tiny little details, plan, and then try how it goes fast. Interesting. But okay. it's a little bit like, imagine you go to the Porsche factory and you pull a car that is not yet assembled and you still go on a test drive. So this is how it is, except that nobody gets hurt because I go and say, ah, okay, so this is not going to work. This kind of fingering is not going to work. I or, think I just crashed that car right now. Exactly. So you go back <laughs> and you said, okay, now I have to change the combination of fingers. And that takes days. Right. I'm sure many, many hours and concentration. How do you maintain your concentration? Mm, just by drinking whiskey. During yeah, I was I'm about just to kidding, say, you, you know? go back to your, and that's the, the your secret time. sauce. Yeah. <laughs> no, whiskey is usually afterwards. I see. Do you have a preferred whiskey, sir? So we uh, are in I Taiwan, will, so I you're really supposed like to the, say- uh, uh, No, I'm not going to say it, oh, even though gonna, I like it. You're but, not even going to say it. <laughs> but I do like Cavalon, of course. The, oh, there you go. You said yeah. it. But the special editions. So oh, only special edition for this man. I have a exquisite taste, I'm sorry. I know. Yeah. I know, I can see that, sir. Actually, in Bulgaria, I still keep my studio, my piano studio. Okay. Because I still spend about two or three months there every year. And I have a very impressive whiskey, whiskey collection. collection. Because I go quite often to London and every time I buy a new bottle. Oh, I see. And I'm a bit like a dragon. I could just bring the whiskeys and I just collect them. In the lair, in the dragon Exactly. Layer. And they just, I like to watch them shine upon me. And that is and your then, inspiration. Yes. And then I just go and drink the cheapest red label Johnny Walker. Exactly. From the liquor store. Mm. And just let your collection stay there for inspiration. Exactly. Maybe once in a while. You'll I, just crack it open. Yeah. What are those special occasions? Uh, when I show up from a party and there is nothing else in the house. I see. Okay. Or like if uh, some someone very beautiful visually shows mm. up at my house and I need to make an impression. That's when... The dragon's lair. 
Yes. You allow permission. Exactly. Right. Or sometimes very late at night, let's say, because my studio is isolated. I can practice uh, 24 hours there. Sometimes, let's say, I finish a very difficult practicing session around two or three o'clock. And my brain is still working on uh, one million RPM. I said, okay, I need to unwind. And then I, I say, okay, now I deserve something really good, like some nice Islay or Highland. Oh, there you go. Or Euro, yeah. What about some Japanese whiskeys? Oh, they're amazing as well. Hibiki. Fantastic. Of course. Speaking of which, which bar are we going after this? I know. We <laughs> we should just go right now. I can I can drag it to a few places. We can just continue uh, yeah, we'll the just, talk there. Exactly. With all the background noise. We'll do that. We'll do that on a follow-up episode. Yes. We'll have sure. the background ambiance. And we'll introduce the audience to some of our personal choices. Right. So what about this? Tell me about this studio of yours. So is this in an apartment? Is this a, a secret uh, lair? It's a dasha in, a, in the countryside? What's going on here? <laughs> it's in a very upscale building in Sofia. And actually when my dad saw it, he was still alive. He said, oh my goodness, with this place, you will never get married. <laughs> and I think he was right because a lot of things happened there besides uh, practicing piano. Okay. So this is like a bachelor's pad. It is. is that what you're saying? Yeah, because it's independent. It's a... It's a very nice building. So in the underground, there is a passage going to the garage section. And like some of the um, neighbors, they have their own little um, storage rooms. Yes. And we've combined maybe six or seven storage rooms, but with uh, very high ceilings. And there is a bathroom inside. There is a little uh, bar corner. There is a... Um, so you create your studio right. yeah, basically the, the, down in the garage, kind of. It's not a garage. It's okay. um, actually, it's a space that should have belonged to the store above us. Oh, I see. It's like the basement the, of the store. Yeah, but it's with very high ceilings. So it's a very... And it's acoustically isolated. Okay. I tried it with very loud, heavy metal. And I went to the neighbor's we can hear anything. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Okay. Which is great for a musician. I have my desk there. I have a crash uh, couch okay, that yep. turns into a bed. I have some extra clothes there. I have the a bed nice revolves in a circle. Revolves and evolves. Yeah. Um, it has, a, you know, it has a nice bathroom. It has a bar with high stools. I have my little library with different whiskeys. I call it library. Okay. Because, uh, Not the dragon's lair, the library. Uh, we want to keep this sophisticated. Yeah. Okay. And a piano. Two pianos. Two pianos. Yes. And a nice desk where I can work on my computer. Sometimes I do my music editing and my music videos editing there. Sometimes I use one of the pianos to create something like small music pieces that are not classical. Oh, interesting. And that's my other side that is yet to be revealed officially. Right. This is yeah. also in the closet. You have a pretty big closet. It is. I know. Who doesn't? Exactly. It sounds Next like Next time studio. we will exchange roles. I'll put you in the hot seat. Yeah. <laughs> you want to know what's in my closet. Yeah. I know. And then, of course, if you need a couch to crash. Okay. Well, then... I'll need to crash after that. I'm sure. <laughs> huh. So what kind of pianos? What are these two pianos? We are just looking at your video on your website. And you said, do you notice something that this is actually several different performances pieced together. And the giveaway is that there are actually two different pianos, at least in this one. So yes, two different brands, yeah. right? A Fazioli, and then also, a, of course, a Steinway. Yes. So yeah. what about in your studio? In my studio is neither of them. Okay. It's just uh, two old war horses. That Ooh, nice. Communist war horses. Actually, one is a, one oh, is really yeah, from East Germany. Yeah. Oh, impressive. How does that sound? It's German. It's very German. Yeah, very East German, yes. <laughs> you know, the Germans, they had that crazy car called Trabant. 
Oh, okay. It was with two cylinders and made this this kind of noise. Yeah, yeah. So, well, now the piano, the sound is not good, but the action is very solid. Okay. So if I need to learn something very challenging, the action is very supportive. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It really is a workhorse. You see, this is is different, let's say, with violinists. Because with the violin, of course, the bow actually makes a very big difference. Okay, the hair and everything. Yeah, because how the way it produces the sound. Of course, the violin has to be good. The violin is the soundboard. The bow is the part that creates the beautiful sound and the speed and everything. With the pianos, it's the soundboard again that creates the beautiful sound, but then the keys are our bows. And this piano, the soundboard is not that impressive, but the action of the keys is very good. Okay, so it's a mechanical beast, basically. Yeah, and it has helped me to learn so many difficult, challenging pieces there that later on I can perform on any piano. I see. So going back to New York City, so you lived there, you went to school there, extended that time another five years. What happened after that? What was the next step after New York? When did you finally say goodbye? Um, When I was kicked out, just kidding. Yes, exactly. Um, I left New York to expand my possibilities because I noticed that even American musicians, even musicians being born in New York, the ones with the successful careers didn't start their careers from New York with zero exceptions, zero exceptions. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best pianists in the world, he's New York born, Muri Pariah. He had to move to London to start his career. Singers like Rene Fleming, who is uh, one of the biggest ones, she was big in Europe. And same thing was with especially the African singers, because in many ways they were more or less not that appreciated. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, even a lot of jazz singers. Yes, Nina Simone. Yeah. yeah, so basically you had the Kathleen battle, you had uh, Barbara Hendricks. They started their careers from Europe, right. from Germany. So is that what happened? You took a kind of a, a segue, a turn into, yes, you went back and to Europe. Yeah, I a bit regretted that I didn't do it earlier, but it's still better to do it later than never. And I spent a year between Vienna and Italy. Then I spent almost a year in Paris and then I relocated to London. London was a kind of a city that I fell in love when I was still a student. I remember transferring from Bulgaria to New York. I had a layover in London. I was flying with British Airways and I had about 20 hours and I went to explore the city. I remember I sent a message to a friend with a picture and I said, this is my next home. Oh, really? And eventually 10 years later, it happened. It happened. Yeah. I moved there, started very slowly. I was, I wanted to get some piano class so I can have sustainable income. And in the meantime, I started exploring the art scene, Mm -hmm. which actually is even more interesting than New York. How or why is that? Because it's in Europe, first of all. You see, New York, like New York is a cultural island. Right, exactly. With no um, offense to America. But New York, then a little bit of Chicago, a little bit of Boston, a little bit of San Francisco. Some Europe, but it's still a young American city. Exactly. Yeah. But you go to Europe and London is like, I was walking on the streets and I was looking at maps from 1708. (laughs) Exactly, yes. And the streets and the buildings were already the same. I know. They already had the infrastructure. The architecture. Yes, they had their ways, like even before the rails were built or the electricity arrived, they had their own storage system. They had the ways of communicating how to send letters. They had mail already at that time because it was an empire and they had everything built. Same was in Paris. Those were cities that 
things were already established and the way the um, social philosophy was already at the time, already becoming more and more secular, mm-hmm. while still involving religion, but not in such a um, dominating way. Dominating way. Yes. And letting, you know, and this is when the capitalism started and the castes started going away and everything was based on what you did, what you accomplished, not where you came from. And then, of course, going to, okay, I'm not even going to mention the art scene, but one thing that struck me about the UK was the pop culture. Like classical music is okay. They don't have the best composers, you know, it's just like their food a little bit. Um, but um, <laughs> Nice. When it comes to pop music mm. or to rock music, they're unbeatable because you have, I mean, I can mention 20 bands, singers of all different styles. You know? Just start with the Beatles. Yeah, and then you have the Rolling Stones, you have, um, you know, you have the Police, you have Dire Straits, you have Eric Clapton, you have Annie Lennox, you have Joe Cocker, you have even the two days, like... Exactly, you have like Oasis and all these other go, new bands. You yeah. go on and on and on and on with names. <laughs> exactly. Like Joe Cocker, I didn't know, he went to the States to study with Ray Charles, and that explains that voice he had. Oh, that voice. Or Annie Lennox, she studied with Aretha Franklin. Oh, really? And you can hear it. Oh, very interesting. Okay. So you really kind of immersed yourself in this. Yes. This history, and then you walk into, into Camden Town, which hosts many of the clubs, and you walk in to listen to live music. And you can't believe it. It's so good. Or oh, they had all these live music clubs around the embankment around uh, London Bridge as okay. well. Or go to East London. Incredible. It's like an incubator for modern music. And then you finished off with some fish and chips. Of course, Four, <laughs> five o'clock in the morning or with some curry. True, true, true. Still Indian food empire, is very good yeah. there. Yes, that's very true. Mm. <laughs> okay, so how long was this stint in London? Um, six and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay. A long time, yeah. Yeah. That's where I started my orchestra. Is this the London Chamber Players? The London Chamber Players, yeah. Okay, can you tell us about that? Well, since my leg fracture, I sort of put aside the idea of becoming a conductor, even though I still kept memorizing all scores, orchestral scores of particular pieces. And I said, okay, I have to do it at some point. And a year before I founded my orchestra, I got the opportunity to conduct the Czech National Symphony Orchestra. Oh, very cool. And that in Prague? Prague. Yeah, and since I had studied conducting at Manus, I said, okay, let me me put my uh, my skills into use. Yes, exactly. And it was a crazy experience, actually, because I arrived in Prague, and the night before the concert, I went out. Of course. Yeah, and because I said, okay, I don't need my hands, actually, because I don't need that much to be concentrated. I don't need to warm up. Yeah, so I'm just, you just need to wave a little bit. Yeah, like a traffic warden, you know? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah Because yeah. everything is done during the rehearsal. That's when you speak to the orchestra and you instruct them and you correct and you advise. So I went out and around the corner, I bumped into this beautiful girl that was already 10 o'clock. And then the little devil just came and pinched me yeah, behind pinched said, you on the butt. Okay. And he said, okay, let's go and have fun. So I went with that girl. We had like four, five, six drinks, after which we went to some dance club. Oh, very nice. And that's when the girl went completely wild. She danced. Through, she took we, you to another world. We danced through the night. And around eight o'clock in the morning, people were already going to work. We parted. You know, she went to sleep. I went to the place where I was staying. 
And I realized the place where I was staying was not even acoustically isolated, which meant I would not have a normal sleep. So I went and I checked into a five-star hotel because I said I need a sleep. And I told the receptionist, hey, give me normal rate. I'll do it from eight in the morning until 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh. But I said, no knocking on the door, no chambermaids, nothing. <laughs> Niente, nada, zilch, nichts. Drunk almost half, uh, like almost a liter of water, pulled down all the curtains and like speaking of a dragon. Yes, yes, And just yes. buried myself <laughs> into the unconsciousness. And that same day, yes, you had up, your debut. Yeah, woke up at 4.30, fresh as a pickle, got up, took a quick shower, went to the concert hall and I was, the whole time I was fidgeting because I said, okay, I need a piano. I said, wait a minute, why do you need a piano? You're a conductor you're, today. You're, yes. you're just stay in front of the orchestra, look as charming as possible and right. be super convincing. With your jeans and holes in them. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> Not and quite. Yes. And I did it. Wow. And, and I remember the girl, actually, she came to the concert and afterwards she was laughing. She couldn't imagine it was the same wild animal. And I said, well, it's probably my notorious twin brother. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So speaking of that, I went back to London. I said, okay, let's repeat that crazy night. No, exactly. just kidding. No, exactly. just, so let's go and uh, let's throw a couple of concerts. Ooh. And I started a small group. I see. And it's basically a full orchestra? No, it's a okay. chamber orchestra. And we've done some concerts in London. We were invited once in Madrid. We played for a very big festival. We had like one or 2,000 people for the closing of the festival. Oh, wow. Including some of the royal family of Spain showed up. Oh, nice. Okay. So it's a serious one. It was, yeah. I mentioned in the intro your kind of latest recent project of the four pianists. Yes. Does this have anything to do with the London Chamber Player? No. Nothing. Uh, the project came later on, a few years later, and it was a continuation of an earlier idea. One of the jazz pianists in the project, me and him had planned for years to do a classical jazz mix over and okay. a duet. And I went to the National Palace of Culture in Bulgaria. It's a very big facility. They have like 14 concert halls and the biggest one hosts 4,500 people. And I went to um, the management to give them the idea. And then one of them said, you know, think bigger. We have four Steinways downstairs. Okay, so let's do it. So I called another very good jazz pianist and another very good classical pianist. And everyone said, sure. Yeah, sounds like fun. Do, yeah. Nice venue, amazing nice venue. pianos. We, we filled it up with almost no advertisement. Really? That was the craziest part. On the first night? On the first night, yes. That's I mean, crazy. People, people were stomping at the end. I've never had it in a concert. It was like, I felt like a rock star. I walk in this huge stage and people are like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> That's so crazy. So the second concert, we decided to push it a little bit further. And in the middle of the concert, we disappeared. We have also a percussionist and a bass player, and we let them do a little medley of two, three minutes. We went back to the stage and we came, four of us, the rest as Santas. No, yes. so Santa does come back in this story. Yes, and it's funny because one of the pianists, he is very dark, like his features are very dark. Okay. And when he put all his suit, he looked like an Arab Santa. And he was sitting next to me and I remember I just, I was laughing with a full voice. Yeah. <laughs> What a yeah. gift. Was this during Christmas? Was this the reason? We did, that was our second concert in the same hall. Okay. For in Christmas. December. Yeah. I see. Yeah. But 
how does this kind of work creatively or kind of composition wise, right? When you have this idea, you have four pianos, two classical pianists, and then two jazz pianists. How do you kind of decide how to arrange things, how to kind well, of present I'll, this? I'll, I'll tell you a little secret about music. Even if you go to the coolest pop or jazz music, actually, again, it's 95% craftsmanship. And then those 5% where you let loose. But to let it loose, you have to be super well prepared. Yeah, you need to get that 95% down. So we had to write scores. We use a special software. Exchange, correct, saying, okay, you come in, you do this. And then, of course, for the jazz pianists, we'll give them their squares of 16 or 32 or 64 bars, bars. where they improvise. Right. And they would go back like ping pong between each other. And then we'll have the percussion. They'll say, okay, now we come here. And we'll take classical pieces that are famous. Let's say something like an opera by Verdi, like Mozart, the Turkish March. Okay. And we break Something very them. recognizable. Yeah. Okay. That's what we do. We take um, something that everyone knows. Yes. And we break them, break it into something completely crazy. Interesting. So we, we start all together very uniformly and then slowly things start departing and going into a completely different direction. But to do that, it's so much practicing, so many rehearsals, so many fights, fights in a good way, no? Of course. It's the kind of fight that the after we- fighting. Yeah. After we finish the rehearsal, we go to have a drink or eat. It's not like the kind that you run, you know, you don't talk to each other. It's more- It's passion for yeah, the craft. Yeah, yeah. It's a fight with the respect, with the mutual respect. Exactly. And that's how the things are created. Yeah. That's what we do. We have introducing and then the jazz musicians take it into a funny way or sometimes more serious or more romantic. Oh, that's amazing. So you give them a bit of a structure for them to be able to improvise within. Yeah. And you guys and kind of lay that, that yeah. out. And both of them are actually classically trained originally. Oh, okay. That so, helps. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, It's yeah, like yeah. being a dancer. Originally you study ballet in order to get your bones and your muscles in the right way. Right. And then you just go modern. Yeah. Yeah. And people love it. Every time we have concerts, I remember in London, we decided to try it. Actually, speaking of connection between my orchestra and the four pianists. Okay. We did a concert where I had my orchestra on stage and the four pianists, we came. And we invited a little Bulgarian folk group that has a Grammy. But they do crossover as well because they have albums with Kate Bush, with uh, Peter Gabriel. Popular singers. Yeah. They sing folk music, but they break into. And... I remember putting the tickets, we had a hall of 1,000 people and they had quite a few other concerts in London at the same time. London is one of the most difficult cities to get audience. And I remember tickets sold five days later. It was crazy because we put them online. A day later, the organizer called me. He said, you will not believe what's happening. And I looked, it was like half of the hall was already booked. And I called my friends in London and said, listen, get your tickets. Oh, you still have three months into the concert. I said, get them now. Some of them listened, some didn't. The ones who didn't later called me, said, do you have some tickets? I said, sorry, I told you. Exactly. Nothing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great problem to have. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the seriously. only regret we had is that we didn't sell them for more money. You didn't anticipate it because yeah. you have no idea where it's going to go. And so the And it was not Bulgarian expats who came to the concert. It was a regular local audience. Again, with almost no advertising. Yeah, that's crazy. So... After London, what happened next? After London, I chose the Asian way. I went to Hong Kong because at the time it had a lot of opportunities to teach, to educate, not okay. so much for performing, but it was sustainable economically. Yes, you can pay the bills. Yes, I stayed there. Then two years later, I started exploring the Chinese, the mainland Chinese market, which at the time was booming. Oh, yes, of course. 
was booming and I reached to a level that I could handpick what kind of gigs to have and to negotiate the um, requirements. I had certain minimum requirements and they were usually met. What year was this when you first entered China, the mainland? Well, the first time I entered, I was far less than impressed. So my first stay was 15 minutes. Oh, okay. I walked into Shenzhen and I saw all the darkness and people staring at me and a few prostitutes offering me massage right. at the border. So I just, just took, took a U-turn. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So that's your first memory of China. That's why, but that was my first memory. Then the second time I went to Wuhan. Ooh, interesting. It was way you before are the, the origin of... Probably, yeah. It's my Batman site, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I went there for a music school opening. They have great universities in Wuhan. They do. Yeah. And it was a very nice experience because the organizers were very friendly. And from there on, my real entry came in 2015. I really didn't consider China until then. And it was a friend of mine who is not even a musician. We were having dinner and he said, well, maybe you should explore what's happening north of the border, right. referring to Hong Kong. And I had already made quite a few connections there through judging competitions. And I said, how about if I come and I gave a recital and maybe masterclass lecture for the professors and for the students? And they embraced the ideas. And then I created a few good relations with universities or schools. Mm. Yeah. And I ended up going to about 24, 25 different cities in China. Oh, wow. Over a period of four and a half years. And because, you know, they stamp you in and out every time. In four years, I changed three passports. Oh, your book just filled up. Yeah, this is That's how many reason. times I went in and out. Okay, too many stamps, too yeah, many Yeah, because pages. in Hong Kong, I didn't get stamped because I, was, I had a Hong Kong ID, so... But China, you're perpetually a, yeah, so, a visitor. Uh, even if I had to go to Shenzhen, I would be like half of a page would go. Three passports, four years in all of these kind of major cities. Yes. I mean, of course, I still did my work in Europe. I had my Australian debut in 2018. I played in Sydney. What were some of your memories during this time? Because as we said, this was, you know, kind of a golden period of, well, I think that time, 2015, maybe up until 2019, 2020, obviously that's when China is starting to go down. And obviously we have the global pandemic, yeah. but a very interesting time in China. So what was that experience like? What were some of your memories? I started being engaged so much with work in China that eventually I moved to Shanghai. And I stayed there with one break in between for about a year and four months. I even got a really nice apartment. I got a beautiful grand piano inside. Oh, wow. Yeah, really? I, moved, I moved all my stuff from Hong Kong to Shanghai. I really called it home for a year. And then just using Shanghai as your base and then... That's what I did. But um, eventually I had to move out because, you know, basically they have no internet. Oh. They have intranet, but not internet. <laughs> exactly. In yeah, 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 yeah. And it became painful. At the time I was recording albums in Europe and every time the sound engineer had to send me a new version, I had to go on VPN and then the VPN would break literally on the last megabyte before the whole file has been After downloaded. The five gigs is downloading. Yeah. And <laughs> when I was in Hong Kong, a five gig will download in about 10 minutes. Right. And in China, it will be maybe three, four, seven, eight hours. I would leave the computer on, go out, do shopping, go to the gym. 99% finished. 95% and crash. Exactly. And of oh. course, yeah, that's when I learned... Finally, I learned some bad words because I was, it, it was very frustrating. Oh, yeah, I couldn't yeah. use social media and being a musician nowadays is very important. Of course, yeah. 
And so basically it was lack of communication. I felt a little bit isolated and staying during that year because everything is so badly censored. I had lost contact of what was happening around the world because Chinese, they're very self-centered. They think, I mean, even their name, the Chenghua means like yeah, center the of the world. Yeah, middle kingdom. Yeah, exactly. And they thought that everything revolves re and evolves around them, which isn't. Right, because it's such a huge, you know, kind of ecosystem that you really can feel like that when you're in there. Yes, right? yes, yes. And I remember the reality hit me. I was once in Italy. I went for a friend's wedding and I had missed out on some massive headlines that the whole world knew about. Right. And I looked like a complete fool because um, when I grew up, one of my grandmothers, she was a major journalist and she had a, her little headquarters in our house. She lived with us. And every morning she would pull all the newspapers and especially after the changes, you know, she was so involved. And for me, it was like a religion every morning to check the news, not to get absorbed into them, but like to do a four or five minute briefing of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a habit of yours. So. Yeah. And I think it's necessary. Not, I'm not saying to read everything, but just even look at the headlines. So exactly. you, you know you know what's going on and you don't miss, importantly, you don't miss yeah. something really huge. Yeah. And in China, that was just everything, how great they're, how great they're dictate. Uh, sorry, president, keep that part in. <laughs> and basically I said, okay, fine. I will just be based in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was still enjoying some freedom at the time. It was still 2016 and I moved back to. But that's right at the end. I mean, that's the when last it three really years. started yeah. changing. Yeah. Exactly. And then very interesting in 2019, end of 2019, I had the feeling that things are going to the dogs. You can feel it in the air. Yes, because since I worked so much in China, I had a bank account and I was keeping a lot of money that I couldn't use outside of China. Right. And I started doing those crazy panicked day trips to Shenzhen. Right, with a pocket full of money. Exactly. And <laughs> yes, because, I know. And I would look like I just robbed a bank <laughs> exactly. every time I go there. The maximum RMB you can take across exactly. the border. Yep. Yeah. I would do it every day. Every day. Yes. Impressive. Yeah, because you take the MTR and you're just on the other side. Right. So I did it for some time, like the whole December. And then I saw the whole thing collapsing. It was like a shit show. Right. And the, the way they just lied to the whole world about what happened with the virus, you know, saying, mm. oh, it's safe. It doesn't transmit to humans, blah, blah. And I was at the time in China and I remember I just left immediately. I went to Hong Kong. Then when I saw what happened in Hong Kong, I came to Taiwan at the time. My girlfriend was Taiwanese and okay. we stayed here. And then we went to Europe. We didn't know what was happening, but it was quite apocalyptic because at the same time, Hong Kong was cracking down on students. And suddenly, because in Hong Kong was the rule of law until then. Mm -hmm. And you would see a policeman that had a badge with their name and all policemen spoke English. And suddenly you see policemen with no badges. Oh, that's scary. Who spoke only Mandarin in Hong Kong. Excuse me, but this is Not Cantonese. Yes. So obviously right. they were inserted from somewhere. And this was usually the hardest beating ones. And I had a 17 year old student who was beaten by the police. And I said, okay. Oh, no way. I'm not going to watch my 1989 going backwards <sighs> because that's what I saw. No, for sure. That's a I flashback. Said, I, said, I said, I'm out of here. I said, I don't want another piggish communism in my life. I had enough of this. That's crazy. So this was at the end of 2019? End of 2019, beginning of 2020, uh, 2020. Okay, that's right. I mean, that timing is impeccable. Yeah, and I said, I said, okay, it's time to bail out. Right. After you visited Wuhan, planted some things, and then let's get out of here. Exactly. <laughs>
I think maybe your dog was there. <laughs> yes, on this secret mission. Could we take two minutes off just to have some water? Yeah, sure, of course, of course. Oh, you're in my jacket. You, girl, you're obnoxious. Girl, you're such a good girl. Oh, yummy. <laughs> oh, God, she's so funny. <clears throat> all right so we are back from a little water or whiskey break we are ready for the uh don't be shy you can say what it is exactly no we we have a lot of things in the closet we have a lot of things waiting for the next episode okay so i think we can make a nice little pivot to where we are now taiwan you mentioned it before you had a Taiwanese girlfriend at that time. Yes. So what exactly is your connection to Taiwan? And I also mentioned in the intro that you have a gold card. That's how we met through this gold card program. So yes, please tell us about how you kind of made this discovery of Taiwan and this connection to Taiwan. My first encounter with Taiwan was in 2018. I came for a few days just to see Taipei because I've never been to Taiwan and it was embarrassing since I lived so nearby. And I was immediately impressed with the um, genuine culture here, something that was missing in China, because in China was obviously destroyed by the communists. Right. And here was the first time I heard the Chinese Mandarin spoken in a polite way. I even texted my friends. I said, it's so confusing because you hear Mandarin, but nobody's elbowing, nobody's spitting loudly on the street, nobody's pushing you. People are really nice. And I happened to notice immediately the interesting mixed influence from both America and Japan. Yes. You go on the small streets and it's like you're walking in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. You go on the big boulevards or uh, avenues and you feel like you're in LA or in New York, depending which ones, you know, the ones with the greenery feels more like LA. So it was very interesting. Of course, I tasted Chinese food the way it never tasted in mainland China. The hot pot places I went here, some of the um, Hunan food or let's say even Hainan chicken, not to mention the Taiwanese beef noodles or the little snacks. And then I found all these little Japanese places, izakaya or uh, sushi places. It was absolutely amazing. One of the first things that I did in Taipei, I took the cable car and I went above. To Muja? Yes. Yes. And I took the most amazing panoramic photos of Taipei. Yeah, they have I spent, nice tea shops up there. Yes. And I had wonderful little cups of tea with different snacks. It was a challenging hike. And I found it was so pure and so beautiful. So at the time, I just... I went online and said, I just literally Googled ways to stay in Taiwan. Taiwan. Okay. And I typed something like independent artists or something like this. I forgot what keywords I used. And then the gold card program came up. I said, okay, that's interesting. And I left it there. I continued working throughout Europe, going back and forth between Europe and Asia. 2019 came. I met my girlfriend. We went to Europe during lockdown. And then she had to come back to Taiwan to work. Taiwan was locked for foreigners at the time. Only residents could enter. So I found that the best loophole was through applying for a gold card. I applied, I got approved, and two months later I landed in Taipei. Huh. 
made some very interesting friendships with both locals and with expats. And I'm sure you remember at that time, the number of interesting expats was amazing. Yes, that's sadly, so true. Sadly, many of them are gone. It's so true, yes. It's, I remember that that year I met so many entrepreneurs. I met artists. I met people in the banking or in the finances. A bit of a controversial phrase, but uh, COVID refugees, right? Yes, and they all used this because at the time Taiwan was the safest place to be. Yeah, definitely. And not to mention the crazy parties and the crazy times we had. It was, I mean, it was like a golden era. I'm sure you you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. So those those were golden moments. They will really stick in my head for a long time. Yeah. And, and you are still here. Well, I left a few months later mm. and I would come back and forth. For all those who are listening, just to make it clear, I've been single for the last two years. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what drew me back was some uh, work opportunities. Like whenever I have work in Asia, I would be based in Taiwan since I don't need visa to stay here with my gold card. Right. And you were mentioning last time that it really makes for a great location. Yes. Geographically. Geographically, it makes sense because if I need to go to Korea, to Japan, it's closer than being in Hong Kong. If I need to fly to Shanghai, it's closer. If I need to open my mouth widely and talk about CCP, I get applauded here. Yes, you're allowed being, to do that. Rather than being silenced or being uh, trolled. Yeah, so, so you like that? Of course, yeah. So what about Asia and all of these experiences, some of them that I had mentioned in the intro, but you know, you've performed all around Asia in some of these big concert halls in Tokyo and yes, even yeah. down to like Australia, right? In this same kind of region. Where are your best experiences and memories performing in Asia? The first two places that always come to my mind are Japan and Korea. In Japan, I used to work with a manager who used to drag me literally around for tours, arranging all the way from Hokkaido down to Okinawa. And I remember playing in Okinawa in front of 5,000 people, a piano recital. Wow. That was really? mind blowing. I remember when I went on stage to do a sound check and to practice, I almost stumbled because I was so shocked to see the size of the hall. It's massive. It was insane. And then because it was a Sunday afternoon concert, after the concert, the stage manager said that he has a little gift for me. What he did was he opened the firewall behind the stage. All stages have firewalls right. to prevent fire spreading both ways. And behind the firewall, there was a 20 meter high glass that basically faced Pacific Ocean. Oh, in the most, Okinawa. In Okinawa. It was the most stunning view. That's they told amazing. me that they've used the background for some of their theater productions, just a natural background because it was so mind-blowing. Then I remember being in northern Japan in December. In Hokkaido. In Hokkaido and taking those little snow trains between the cities for yes. the performances. And just having some warm food on the train and sleeping on the benches because there was literally nobody in the train. Or waking up in the morning after a big concert and just strolling down to a local sushi market where all the fish arrived fresh off the boats. And they saw I was like the only foreigner. So everyone would give me a little sample oh, of their nice. food. And by the time I crossed the whole market, I would be completely full. You had your meal. I had my meal, yes. The freshest sushi in the world. It was amazing, yeah. Okay, so those are your memories in Japan when you also mentioned Korea. What about Korea? In Korea, I had a very interesting experience with a festival. It was done on the demilitarized zone. 
Oh, in the DMZ. In the DMZ. I've been up there too, yes. So we could see actually on the other side the strict looks of the soldiers staring at us at the closest points. It was a festival that was so perfectly organized. I remember arriving in Korea. Someone was waiting for me at the airport with my name and they immediately had a, a ready snack for me in the car when we arrived in the campus of the festival it was somewhere in the mountains there was a welcome basket and inside there was a phone that was like jason born thing the phone was with little instructions in english and it said long press one for translator in english <laughs> long press two if you want to talk to the director of the festival it was was wow. really so professional and i had my own uh, bungalow with grand piano that i could practice 24 hours. And since speaking of Rachmaninoff, I had to play Rachmaninoff third piano concerto with an orchestra. I really needed any possible hour between the teaching because I was teaching a lot there. What kind of concert is this? Why? <laughs> no, the concert was in a normal hall in uh, in Seoul, actually. Oh, I see. But okay. some of my colleagues, they actually went right on like some open platform just by the border and they did a concert there. At the DMZ. Yeah, the watchful eyes of the... Uh, the North, North Koreans, Koreans. The, the buddies, the cousins yeah. cross the bridge. I couldn't play because they couldn't have a piano outside. But the ones who played the violin or cello, they played outside. They could play there. Yeah. So you went into that room, the UN kind of room? No, we then, didn't go there. Oh, okay, yeah. I see. That far now. I mean, don't forget that DMZ actually spreads throughout the whole border. It's True. Not, it's not just that point, the exactly. notorious point. Jump. Yeah. yeah, but it goes all the way across, of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we were in a different point, but you could see everything just on the other side. Was right. Literally 200 meters. Crazy. Last time we were talking, you also mentioned Indonesia. Yes. Yeah. You have some really interesting experiences playing in Indonesia as well. That was actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's a very cultured family. It's one of the most prominent families in uh, Indonesia. And they had built their own pavilion for the arts where they had a beautiful grand steinway concert size and inside there were all those paintings beautiful art fine art paintings right and sculptures and since i was a guest of that family they just gave me the key of that pavilion to practice 24 7. oh wow it was i felt <laughs> i felt like a prince from uh Rizad stories you now from thousand and one nights i was so spoiled but it was so inspirational because i basically spent 10 days Practicing there, we gave two concerts at the venue. Many interesting people showed up. Actually, Indonesia has a very unique art scene. Music-wise, they're not so much into classical music, but they do their own pop style. Some of them have amazingly beautiful voices when it comes more to pop music. I see. Very strong voices. Also, fine art, there are a couple of great artists. So mm. My experience was very positive there. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Here we are in Taiwan. What about the music scene here in Taiwan for you? In terms of classical musicians, Taiwan produces a lot of fantastic musicians. Mm. I've done master classes in pretty much every music department in Taipei. And there are many, including at two high schools for music. And I can tell you the level is amazingly high. Mm. I'm not talking just technically playing, but because they have good teachers, they have good professors who have studied abroad. And many of them are actually second or third generation that have studied abroad. So when it comes to pianists and violinists or string players, Taiwan is very strong. Considering what a small place is, it has produced quite a few impressive musicians. Many of them are based here. Many of them are around the world. 
What about some shortfalls or places where you think that Taiwan needs to kind of improve or has opportunity or room to improve in terms of classical music in particular or just music in general? Do you have another five hours? Yes, exactly. We will. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, the long version we'll say for the next time, but exactly. the short version. The short version is that in many aspects in Taiwan, things are backwards. They haven't changed, not since Chiang Kai-shek, but since Sun, uh, Sun, Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen. Even you go to the bank, you want to change the smallest detail into your bank account. It's a challenge. Yes, the it's, banks um, are notoriously bad here. It's terrible. Same thing is in education. Yes, the kids are great, but it's very puzzling that the big universities don't have so many foreigners working here. Right. And that's alarming. As if they stay into their own world and they don't want to allow anyone from outside to share their knowledge. And there is a lot to be shared. Exactly. And they even have a program like the Gold Card, which ostensibly is bringing these kind of experts. And when the experts see that nothing is happening, they leave. Right. Because the square heads in the government don't do any effort to make changes. All they care about is just taking yet another group photo with another banquet and dinner. Even they know there is a fact, there are numbers that all those departments in the government, they spend more money just arranging all those dinners and receptions to talk about launching yet another thing that just goes down to the dogs. Just a little PR thing. Yeah, but even the PR is like, you see all these aging men with no women there and just, you know, the kind of uncles that sing karaoke later on. And if you have such karaoke uncles running the country, I don't think this country can uh, go forward. I mean, I'm I'm sorry to say, but sometimes the way I see the government and the many issues are not working, it's like this place is begging to be taken over by China. I'm really sorry to say, but... That's how you feel. Yeah. Even like the military is not so prepared as it should be. And it's it's not even international yet. Even in Tokyo, even in uh, Hong Kong, of course, Hong Kong is different. But in other places, you have so much bigger international community. Here, very often, the international community consists of a bunch of uh, Lao Wai who are married to local girls, or they come here to teach in cram schools, but not bankers, not uh, entrepreneurs, not people who open big businesses or have big visions to start something. And if Taiwan is bragging that it's doing this, Where is it? They created here this massive music agency. I went there and I hit the glass ceiling right away, despite all my good ideas. Are you talking about in Nangang or the one in Shiling, the new kind of performance hall or somewhere else? I'm talking about uh, there is a government agency, it's called Taika. I mean, the people are nice there, God bless their little hearts, but big part of that money goes unused because they don't know how to implement it and how to do it in a way that arts thrive. The government grants. Yes. And they're not, they're not designed properly to really be implied in such a way that you see a growth in the arts. You go to, let's say, to the 1914, the arts. Oh, Huashan. Yeah, Huashan. You go yeah. to Huashan and you don't see art. You see crafts, but like girly crafts with like little pencils with little feather on the top or some wooden uh, Pinocchio domino that this is not art. Of course, you know, there are wonderful galleries, but again, it's, I'll give you an example. Bulgaria has 7 million people. You go to the Czech Republic is 8 million people, maybe 11 million people. See what's happening there. Yeah, that's here, interesting. Here you have 24 million. Right, 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 right. Where is the initiative? You know, since so much money comes here from all those specialized productions that the whole world needs, you know, where is this money going into more interesting, more innovative, more progressive projects? Mm. 
do you have any ideas for the government? If anyone is listening who actually wants to make a change, well, replace all those karaoke uncles with younger, smarter people who have studied abroad. And many of them, they suffer here to pay their rent and to get proper jobs. Yeah, that was because a big thing those, in these recent elections. Yeah, because all those karaoke uncles on top stay and they do nothing. They really do nothing. They just like to be seen at a certain event and be taken picture and holding yet another certificate of recognition. I think we need another 1989 revolution here. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. That's okay. not, I'm, I'm not a political <laughs> commentator, but um, just younger people should be more involved mm. into governing. Have you found that there is that energy or that there's this frustration among young people, you know, because you have experience kind of working with these universities, with these younger students at high schools like TAS as well. So what has been your feeling with the younger generation? All of them want to get the hell out of here. Oh. All of them say that, and mm. that's not good. I remember when I was growing up, we had a similar feeling in Bulgaria. About 10, 12, 14 years ago, there were some parliamentary elections in Bulgaria, and the um, government that was formed at the time, they promised to everyone's laugh that they will start bringing Bulgarians back to Bulgaria. And it actually happened. They created the so-called uh, digital nomad communities. They introduced a 10% flat income tax. They introduced the fastest running internet in all the European Union and a couple of other incentives. And now you have not only Bulgarians returning and starting companies, but you have also some other Europeans. Yeah, there's a lot of those great initiatives there. Estonia is very famous for exactly. doing something yes. very similar. Yeah, and I say, okay, the geographic position of Taiwan is perfect. Within one island, you have so many things happening. Yet, as again, I'll say those karaoke uncles do nothing about it. Right. How do we get that vision up there? Karaoke uncles? Yeah. I don't know. Someone Whiskey. has to go and tell them. They're useless. I met some of them. And it's like they even don't speak English properly. Do they drink whiskey well? They drink Mao Tai. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> huh. But despite that, you are here, you enjoy your time here, and you are trying to find those opportunities. I don't think I can find the opportunities, but I think I can create them. Mm. And as we spoke earlier, we probably will start some special place for the arts. And... And try to do something that the government is ostensibly trying to promote, but no one really makes those efforts or knows no, how to do it. They or don't. Look at the websites. It reminds me, back in 97, Microsoft had that software for amateurs to create websites. That is a Taiwan UI. It's exactly Very the same. Very famous. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly. So what is this secret project that is in the works now? Well, what are some things that we can reveal? Well, it's not secret since you are part of it. It's uh, getting a nice venue that will promote the arts. It will hold different arts-related events or just even social discussion events or lectures. It can be also in the other industries. Mm -hmm. It will be a place for gold card holders to meet people from Taiwan and have a cup of coffee or maybe even the famous Kavalan, have a bite, listen to live music or watch a film either created here or abroad or by people who have moved here and decided to create. Right. And it will be a place that the profits will basically go into the organization to make it bigger. And what is the language of medium? 
it should be bilingual. It should be both Mandarin and uh, English. So everyone feels safe at home because if we put it only in English, many people will be intimidated and will, they will not walk in. And this is something that has to be approached as well. More places have to be bilingual. More truly bilingual. Yes. In terms of science being clearly done in both languages. So neither visitors or foreigners or locals feel intimidated. I mean, Taiwan really needs to do that, needs to internationalize more. It's really kind of an existential thing in order to kind it of survive. It is an existential thing, and I don't know if they realize it. Much more PR has to be done on behalf of this lovely nation. Right. So hopefully we have a recent election here in Taiwan. We have a new president coming in in a couple months. He was in charge of really kind of turning around Tainan in terms of English and kind of spearheading this government initiative of bilingual 2030. So, you know, these are government initiatives. They obviously have their difficulties and timelines as well, but these let's are things a, that they're let's working give them on. A hint. We can give them a hint. Yeah, I think that will be a really great thing for Taiwan going forward. And if, they just have to hire, there are so many local brilliant young minds. Who are ready and eager to yes, help because and Otherwise they just buy a one-way ticket and they go to America or to Europe or to Australia. To keep them, they have to offer them something. So their voices are heard, not only once every four years, but actually in actively working. They have what to say, they have what to share from all those expensive tuition fees around the world. Taiwan has a massive brain potential. Mm -hmm. Not only potential, that it's also a brain resource that is already available here. For sure. And to keep it, because these are all people that think independently, they have to be involved, they have to be more part of this whole project. And hopefully also, which is something that we're kind of seeing small parts of that, but Taiwanese, Taiwanese Americans, or part of that larger diaspora who went abroad, you know, at whatever time in history are starting to come back, including some of our gold car friends, people that we know. So. Exactly. And these people, they can be so helpful. Exactly. There is we, momentum. We are here. Use us. Okay. So there you are. Mr. President, Mr. President Lai, <laughs> Ivan Yanukov <coughs> is here. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe my next gold card will be revoked. Exactly. <laughs> Due to technical reasons. Due to technical difficulties. <laughs> nice. So yes, what does the future hold for you here in your life? Do you have any uh, kind of big projects coming up? Do you have any uh, thoughts dreams, hopes for the upcoming future? This year is pivotal because I am preparing a couple of albums. So by year end, there'll be four more albums being released, which oh, wow. is quite intense. You're busy. Plus a couple of singles, okay. recordings, music videos, quite a few concerts starting from May on. And funny enough, I will finally make my conducting debut in Bulgaria. Oh, you're coming out of the closet back at home. Yeah. So I'm that conducting the... The Bulgarian Chamber Symphony. Oh, very the, the cool. The Bulgarian Chamber Orchestra, as they call it, yes. In Sofia. Yes. It so is a wonderful homecoming. It's very interesting because I'll play the piano, so I'll be conducting from the keyboard as well. Oh, that's interesting. Be a concerto for piano and orchestra. Oh, amazing. And four albums coming out within this next year. Exactly. The Year of the Dragon. The Year of the Dragon. Here you go. Speaking of dragons. Then, exactly. Yeah. The dra From the dragon's lair yeah. to the Year of the Dragon, everything has come full circle. It's interesting because I'm not dragon by a sign, but I have dragonish plans. Exactly. Yes, you do, sir. Yes. The world better watch out. <laughs>
<laughs> I love it. It's amazing. I wish you the best of success in all of those endeavors. I'm really looking forward to all of those kind of things, those albums as well. Hopefully we'll be able to get some of your music and kind of weave it in here as well. So people it is can coming. hear it. As early as February, I'm doing two concerts in Taipei. Okay. One is yes. a solo recital. The other one is going to be with more like a tango music. Yes. That sounds amazing. I've been to yeah. Argentina. Tango is amazing. Buenos Aires is a sexy, sexy city. And I still haven't been there. It's oh, still my dream. Yeah. Buenos Aires is special. Argentina is a special country. Well, in this case, we just bring Buenos Aires to my concert. There you go. There you go. I will channel all my memories, bring some of my uh, Argentinian friends. We'll have some good wine, some we good music. We will tango. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Okay, amazing. So yeah, you all look out for that. You can find that information either on his website, on social media. He's on Spotify. You can download him all over the place. You can go out to the music stores if they still exist, buy records, buy everything. Or just simply come next month and shake my hand after the concert. That's good enough. Meet the man himself. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming in here and sharing these amazing stories and amazing insights and sharing your opinion so freely, which is so beautiful, so refreshing. Well, it's, um, I don't mean to insult anyone. It's just my honest observations. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we need, right? We don't need just like earlier I censorship told you, and when earlier I told you that when I rehearse with the four pianists, we fight, but the fights are just constructive fights. Exactly. The intention is good. Exactly. Yeah. And the purpose is because we care, right? It's professionalism. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Yes. Likewise. Now let's go to the Cavalan shop. And we will be back or not sometime later. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Ivan. Thank you. All right. Thank you to the audience for listening. We hope everyone has a wonderful day, wonderful rest of the month as well. Peace.